Hello, and welcome to Educational Triage, where we discuss issues in alternative education. This is a discussion about teaching by teachers, for teachers, and others who are interested in the alternative education world. We hope you find today's episode relevant, engaging, and useful. And if you do, please subscribe. I'm Tony Hunt, and I'm here to help guide you with the help of my friends, Christy and Philip. And welcome back to Educational Triage, where we are joined with Christy Goodell. Hello. And Philip Summers. Hello. <laughs> and everybody's in a very happy, happy mood today. It's good to see. Um, today, we're going to take on something that's it's been around for a while. I was really surprised at how long it's been around, and um, they've been discussing it. But we're going to look at Universal Design for Learning, also commonly known as UDL. And uh, I think today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it is, rather than and maybe some a few examples or yeah. just talking about its implications, what it can be done. And the truth about UDL is that it tends to be more elementary school focused rather than uh, high school focused. But right. for alternative ed, I think that it plays, it can play a huge role and it kind of opens up a lot more doors. Uh, would you agree? I totally agree. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So Christy, Universal Design, I found this fascinating but it also makes a lot of sense that Universal Design for Learning was was created in response to uh, special ed and working with right. students in special ed. So can you tell us anything about that? Well, I mean, not necessarily like the history connected between that and special ed, but like the what it's supposed to do is just re trying to remove barriers that to a student's way of learning and then also providing a variety it's like a variety of teaching methods in order for a student to access their education so that's kind which is a lot of the same philosophy of special education if a student is has barriers whether it's like their disability or if it's vision how are we able to provide supports and or Specially designed mm -hmm. instruction in order for them to access their education. Right. Does that kind of fit mm -hmm. what you were thinking? Yeah. Kind of. So, yeah. I mean, a lot um, of it's like super basic. I mean, I think people tend to acknowledge it like with having um, like closed caption, right? That's, I need to, I have a hearing loss. And so, I, if you're showing videos in my classroom, right, throw on right. closed captions. So, that would be an example of... But isn't that more out of ADA, the American Disabilities Act? Well, I mean, that's the laws that you need to provide that. Right. But that's just like an example of you're not... A simple barrier breaker. Yeah. I need to be able to access the information. Here is a different way to access the same thing. Right. Right. It's like flex you're providing flexibility within your classroom in order to mm -hmm. get the content to your students. It's not like, hey, we're all going to um, yeah. do everything this exact same way. But I recognize that, you know, you may need, but you have vision and so you might need large font. And so I'm going to, you know, zoom in on, I mean, these are like really simplistic examples, right? But you're providing diversity and um, inclusion and providing differentiation, be able to gain knowledge, right? It, it's not procedural. It sounds, I think maybe that sounds a little procedural. The way I looked at it was, it, it's the way I was treating students anyway, providing the context. And so when I provide context to students, I want to get to a student the way they want to communicate, the way I communicate best with them. And so it's not necessarily maybe a font, but let's say uh, I used to teach a class film literature um, because the kids responded to film so well. They, they got all the, the basic concepts of English through the films, and then we explored reading and such. But, you know, I kind of modified that, that 
lesson plan for the population I had. Um, and then, of course, under the individual, you know, there are certain laws you have to adhere to. But we had so many kids that were special right, ed, right. and then technically they were on IEPs anyway because I cared enough about each one to know kind of what their educational plan was and what I had for them. And that was that kind is of, a great point that this is. Yeah, it's not purely for students who are receiving special education services. And I think that is a really great point that you're making. This is and it's not just how you it's not the how the work is being represented, like the format. I totally agree. It's also like that engagement. How are they participating in their education? Right. So it's not like everyone's going to stand in front of the classroom and you're all going to give a speech. Well, you are going to also create you could create a PowerPoint and you're going to write like, exactly, how are you going to uh, participate? Yeah, so I think it's really kids good. a lot of self-determination too, which I always found to be key. I always hooked that, you know, if I can get them going, okay, tell me what you'd like without putting too much burden on them because that can overwhelm them, but right. sort of pry it out of them how they yes. want to express themselves or how they receive information. And then you can really do a right. lot with it because they have the passion for it, the context and and that and that's what I liked about UDL. Uh it gave them the context. Okay. It wasn't a lesson out of it nowhere. It was kind of let's Let's make this lesson right the student themselves, um, not just yeah. yep. the lesson plan or the testing criteria or the objectives that we want for this year. Yeah. So well, let's yeah. let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Because I think we, I think we started off with the definition, and all of a sudden we were making an epic movie. Um, <laughs> up <and> Keep down. up. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was just a little leap. Um, many, many generations. So through my research so far, what I have discovered is that it is taking a look at looking at the disabilities of schools and the facilities rather than taking these, taking those of the student into account. So what were some of the problems that the schools were having? And this Are you was like systemic. Sorry. Yeah. So what it did was it drew on, I'm going to quote, UDL drew upon neuroscience and education research and leveraged the flexibility of digital technology to design learning environments that from the outset offered options for diverse learner needs. Mm -hmm. This also allowed for more responsiveness to learner needs. Mm -hmm. And that comes from theory, uh, universal design for learning in theory and practice. And it's a framework organized around three principles. And I think that if we look at these three principles, we can discuss each one of those. Okay. Um, and they guide the design and development of curriculum that's effective and inclusive for, every, for all learners. And so basically, it's a culmination of research into what makes up learning differences and the design of supportive learning environments. And so they ha they map them into th three groups of brain networks, which are recognition, strategic, and effective, effective, not effective, effective networks that play a primary role in learning. So to support recognition learning, provide multiple means of representation, and that is to offer flexible ways to present what we teach and learn. Right. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. So yep. that's kind of like what Philip was saying, like the format, right? Like how, right. how is it, right? Right. So how is it represented? Yeah. And, okay. So, and then to support the learning, strategic learning, providing multiple means of action and expression. So yep. flexible options of how we learn and express what we know. Right. Mm-hmm. So how they're, yeah, how are they interacting with or engaging with the material, right? Right. Yeah. So, and then to support effective learning, where mm -hmm. you provide multiple means of engagement, mm -hmm. flexible options for generating and sustaining motivation, the why of learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Look at that. Done. Okay. All done. <laughs> so, and there's three types of brain networks and you have the recognition networks that sense and assign meaning to patterns we see and identify and understand information, ideas and concepts. 
You have the strategic networks that relate primarily to the executive functions and are specialized to generate and oversee mental and motor patterns. Those are the hows and the affective networks, which evaluate patterns and assign them emotional significance. They enable us to engage with tasks and learning with the world around us. And that would be the why of learning. Now, the interesting thing is, is when we teach, there's a guy named Todd Rose, and he is on the faculty, I believe it's at Harvard School of Education. And he was, he dropped out of school with a 0.09 GPA. Um, and he talks in his TED Talks about the myth of average. So what is an average student? Can you tell me what an average student is? Or is any student an average student? And he says no, because you have different patterns. Different students are really good. They, they go the gamut. And so they make these Z kind of plots with with what they're good at and what they're not good with. Some people might be the same, but no two students are alike. Mm -hmm. Correct? Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and, yeah. and if we are designing our regular curriculum for, let's say, the average student, there is no average student. You can't tell anybody what the average student is. Now, this is the premise. So we need to be able to get more students included so when you're teaching, not all students are going to do well if you are lecturing, not all students. So how are you going to get these ideas across to the student? And they're talking about what are the options that the students have in order to gain access to the materials and then take those, extrapolate them, and then provide you with what you need in order to know that they understand the concepts. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, Philip, you do an IEP for all of your students. And let's say you have 20 students in your class. Every one of those students has a different way of doing it. So mm -hmm. we say, okay, we're going to look at, we're going to look at X today. Let's say we're going to learn at what is X today in algebra. Mm -hmm. So what are the, how will different students understand that and how are they going to be able to, what are they going to do? So are some of them going to have to be able to use manipulatives? Are some of them going to have to do some research and reading? Or do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 If, okay. if you want to lead a so, class, if, if I wanted to lead a classroom itself, I would have a couple of modes of presenting the information intentionally. So it was a little redundant um, with good general framework. And then after that, we'd have an activity of such where I could flesh out who needed more help than others on what we were supposed to be grabbing from that. And then from there, I kind of like it open up. But you just limited yourself to two. No, I didn't. What I did is I presented it <laughs> twice redundantly kind of getting a gauge on the but room. Then I look to see who was getting it. Now, if I got one kid who really gets it and he's a good a good buddy of the other guy, I will actually have them arrange like the good guy that's good at it to teach the guy who doesn't quite understand it. There's one possibility. I could also lead a discussion. I have a, I have a progressive sort of pragmatic variance of doing things, but I do try to get to everybody and the way they learn. There's just prominent ways. Right. Right, but see, you're, but now you're still not student-centered because the student is not the center of it. it. It kind of feels as though they are. Christy, I'm going to throw it to you. How would, what, are, what are some of the different ways that you would do it? So, if, so just to make sure we're – so if I'm presenting or some type of content needs to be shared within my class, right? Right. Let's like, say that they're going for what is X. How to understand what a variable is, right? Right. And so and of knowing that I have different learning styles right. of, in my classroom, right? Because so, I, look, I, I used to be the, the same way that Philip is, where I would have somebody who understood it maybe tell the other kid and work that way. Yeah. But that's not always the most effective way, and it doesn't allow the other student to kind of use whatever 
skills that they have in order to. Well, they're in a separate conversation. Information. This would be one kid on one kid, one teaching to another kid to learn. It could be a right. possibility. There are other possibilities. Right. I have the, I have the students right. initiate. Right. That's what I'm. And I think right. it's also important to like kind of almost take a step back and not have it be so like, how are all the different ways you're going to teach this one chunk of information, right? Because then it just seems so compartmentalized. But if you're kind of okay. like, hey. So we're going to go with the concept. Well, I mean, like if I'm going to teach my kids how to introduce, you know, whatever systems of equations, how do you solve for X, right? Um, I would continue to, you know, present it auditorily, right? And then I'm going to have the visual up there. And then we're going to um, also have, you know, some kids are going to write it down. I'm going to also provide printouts of like, have copies of graphs. So those kids that struggle with graphing, right? They would be able to still get the information down, but they don't have to worry about drawing a graph. And then we're going to have um, independent work and then that we can do the group work. So it's constantly embracing all the different learning styles. But I think it's kind of hard to be like, hey, I'm going to teach how to solve for X and I'm going to teach it 25 different ways because that is just not I mean, feasible. You know what I'm saying? Totally so right. that's kind of so what. One of the things that I discovered is that, and one thing that I was taught from all of this research I've been doing is that first you start with your goal. So what is your goal that you're going to be teaching? And then you have to list all the barriers that you could confront in your class. So what are the barriers that the students might actually have in working with, with what they're going to be doing? And so let's say that we are working with algebra and that we are going with what is the concept of X and or variables. And if you need to teach that, because I would think that that would be one of the most foundational components of algebra, correct? Um, so what would some of those barriers be? Barriers to that are preventing a student from learning the concept. Right. Philip, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm with you. you, you I'm, I'm having a problem framing the conversation in my mind because I don't think in levels of, of individual lessons. I, I, I've never taught lessons per se, and I've, I've really never taught mathematical concepts either. So. I'm not so great at those. Oh, okay. I, I sort of teach in a fluid sort of way. It can start somewhere, go around in a different way. It always comes back to the good place. But when, when you come with a classroom, with me, it's sort of a journey. It's not sort of, here's the lesson, okay. let's nail it. And so that's, right. I guess that's always been you. an approach like UDL might have, but I'm always sort of flexible, pliable, and seeing what the kids want to do with it. And then I keep it mm -hmm. sort of on track in its lane, but I let them kind of, understand it and play with it i give them well, that's good hints part of sometimes, it too. But, yeah. right and that's part of it so Christy, yeah when, that's what really appealed to me in fact, is the flexibility of it all because i've always tried to be very very flexible mm -hmm. yeah. i mean there's a lot so a lot of the barriers that continually pop up that udl is a good strategy to com combat that to to trying to think of the verbiage, right? but I mean, like yeah. sometimes, yeah, or like to counteract it. That's the word I was looking for. So a lot of the barriers can sometimes just be the length of time in class, right? That is, if you struggle with attention or if you need lots of movement, that is a, that is a problem, right? So you need to have, um, you know, the length of time, can you chop? So that's a lot of times teachers just recognize that I'm going to only provide instruction or do this activity in like 20 minute chunks. Um, and again, this is like kind of at the high school level, because obviously it's going to be different at different grade levels, right? Secondary and elementary and middle school all have different attention spans. But then there's also the, if you are um, another barrier for students, if it's the present, the information is being presented auditorily only, Right. So that is another barrier for a lot of students. So are you um, talking and showing visuals and, you know, allowing for um, like even in math, like are you giving them rulers and stuff so they can draw out, you know, the graphs versus they're just going to look at a graph? Are they um, like we embrace there's a lot of programs now that you can 
enter the information in the computer and it will help graph and you can kind of manipulate it, right? So you can actually see it. You can change the domain and range. You can change the, the, the slope. You can change the, you know, the right. sign, right? So you can manipulate it. So that's another way versus I'm just going to look at a worksheet. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, also the engagement is, is critical in a lot of, um, Right. Classes. How are how are they? Are they only watching movies? Are they only typing essays? Are they only doing? Um, you know, are they making posters? And so then, for some students, who are like, I don't feel very artistic, or I can't. You know, I'm right. not a visual person. And then, like the whole gamut of like the anxiety, where if you have to present things or working in a group. So I think. If you if a teacher is just staying in one style the whole time, that's the barrier by not having all the variety in there is well, a way to combat that or counteract that. OK, so let's say that. Sorry, a lot of info there. <laughs> right. No, that, that, I mean, this whole thing is like this mind blowing kind of concept on yeah. how to try to do something, because those of us in secondary have been I mean, we've been taught. We were taught old school that X, Y, and Z is how we're supposed to do things. And then something like this comes along, but it's got infinite possibilities for us because, Philip, you do a lot of this stuff without realizing it. And I think Christy does too. I know I do. But so if we have our goals and we know what we're going to do, we set ourselves so that we know what a lot of the barriers are going to be for a lot of the students that are there. So if we have those already, if we anticipate those, we need to set up an anticipatory set maybe so that the students kind of get geared up so they kind of know what's happening, what's what's coming their way a little bit. And maybe you play around with that. And then let's say that we're going to study, let's say we're going to study something about the Civil War. And then the students have a choice as to how they are going to discover whatever it is that you want them to know. Like what were the causes of, what were the causes of leading up, what what happened leading up to the Civil War? What created, what was it? Because it wasn't, it wasn't as simplistic as they like to tell us in, in elementary school and everybody clings to that because it is so facile. But so how would you, Christy, like to do that how would you, Philip, like to do that? And then you go around and people make their own choices. So it's not necessarily because I want to do this with my buddy and this is what we're going to do. It's going to be what's the best way for you to learn how to do that. And there's a contract in a sense that this is what you're going to do. And then you have a timeline. And so you start looking at how you're going to keep people engaged and how are you going to, you know, keep people there. It might make that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that's that totally, clearer? Is yeah. That, okay. So. And I th yeah. I, you know, when you were describing that, I kind of had a little flashback to like when I first got out of um, school, you know, I graduated college and my first job is I worked at a Montessori school and they, a lot of the foundation in a Montessori school is the same thing that we're talking about, right? Like that was a big thing where instead of saying, hey, we're all going to learn how to count today and everyone's going to do it, you would have all these opportunities of like counting, but they were all like, you got to go choose. They were all on a shelf. There's 16 different, you know, they had little trays because these were littles, right? And so this one would go and practice with, um, you know, and it would be seasonal and super cute, right? And lots of engagement. So you could kind of choose what interests you. And then one would be like counting cotton balls. Remember, this is preschool, right? And so another person is stacking blocks and another person is counting these things. And another one is drawn, right? So there's all these different ways to get these like real basic math concepts to them, but they're all engaging in what interests them. And lo and behold, they all were staying engaged for a period of time. And then when they were done, they put it away and they picked something else, right? And so that's kind of, I feel like a little bit foundation of what UDL is, that if a teacher can provide these different ways for them to engage in the learning and then be able to perform the task and demonstrate the learning, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the other thing that's kind of nice is that if you provide these different ways, it reduces the the stigma of, hey, everyone is doing an essay and I'm the lone duck that's going to do a PowerPoint, right? right? And you just, right. be, then you have this huge spotlight and the kids don't want it. But if you're like, hey, everyone has a choice of these three things to do, then it doesn't seem like the smart right. kids, quote, quote, are going to do this. And then the dumb kids are, right? You, you feel like a less than. And so you're taking that away except, as well. Except you just limited it. Well, I mean, you could, I you just said, put any number, three, five, ten, whatever. But well, let's, let's take it off of the teacher's shoulders and let's put it on the student's shoulders. So I'm going to say, Philip, how do you want to do that? Christy, what are you going to do in order to do that? Here are some possibilities of what you might want to do. Right. Maybe, you, maybe you're going to build a timeline, like a living time, not a living timeline, but you're going to build a timeline that's not just words on a page. Right. You're going to build something that demonstrates that how everything went and maybe create some kind of symbols. And Christy, what would you like to do? And you say, well, I think I would like to write a play and I'm going to do this with friends of mine and we're going to put all that together. It's the kids can come up with what they want to do. So it's that's part of their responsibility to come up with how they are going to invest their time. If we're doing it, then we're not looking at them being able to showcase their own strengths and build on their own strengths because how they do that, you don't know what kinds of talents a lot of these kids have. There was one, uh, there was a video I watched and this woman said, you know, her mother forced her into piano lessons and she could not get the notes down. She could not translate from the page onto the keyboard, the notes, and she just wasn't able to do that. And then, her mother used to take her piano lessons and then she would play them at night. And so she would listen. And the next day she'd go down and she'd be able to play because she she could figure out which notes played which sound. So then she was able to do it because she heard it. And her mother thought that she was having such a wonderful, wonderful improvement. And she really wasn't. I mean, and she had tried everything to get there. But her talent was being able to listen to the music. So it was almost like... Mm-hmm. You know, she could translate it that way. I know a lot of people who can do that who can't read music. And so there we have students who understand what's going because they're very audio auditory, but they can't do the translation from the page in. So, you know, mm-hmm. how are we? And so if that's easier for them or maybe we guide them to find those, then how do we get there if? we don't ask them to help us get there. What? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, and I think you have, I think you have to make it specific enough that students kind of know what to do in case they struggle with. Well, if they struggle, then there's always supports. Right. And you're making it broad enough that you're, like you said, you're not limiting it. So it's right. that nice, right? Because if you're just like, do whatever you want, then then no, you also- Make right, a choice that- about what are some ideas of what we can do and do it as a class and try to figure out what different people could do. And so maybe even make a list of things. And then, and you always have the shy ones who later come up and say, I, I can't do any of those. I was hoping I could put those in there. That's one of the nice things about the Spencer Kagan um, multiple intelligences is that they have lists and lists and lists of different things that people can do for projects or to display their learning. And so, and I'm bringing in Spencer Kagan because he did a thing on cooperative learning, but it was also using multiple intelligences. And so when I hear universal design for learning, I'm also thinking Howard Gardner and I'm thinking about not only the eight intelligences, because there are far more than that, but those are the basic intelligences that we knew. And this is back in the 90s, of course, but I think it's still relevant because some kids show their talents in one way over other students, but we still want to work on some of the talent, some of their weaknesses and build those up as well. And UDL helps them showcase what talents they actually have. Yeah, I like so, that. So they can like find showcase. success 
yeah, they can find their, they can find success in their own way. So if we go back to the average student, before that, the Air Force couldn't figure out why they were, this is also from Todd Rose, Air Force actually couldn't figure out why their uh, pilots and why their jets were not performing up to par, the pilots and the jets, why that whole program wasn't working up to par. And everything was done because they had designed the jet cockpit for the average pilot. Well, there is no such thing as an average pilot. And this is back in the 50s. Right. And so and so they said, well, the average pilot is da 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 da. Well, no, because none of those pilots, some of those pilots were not five foot six. They were six foot two. Some yeah. of them had broader shoulders. Some of them had smaller shoulders. Some of them had bigger hips. They have Longer legs, shorter torsos, longer torsos, shorter legs. Okay, so we have all this stuff going on. So then they asked the Air Force, fix it. And the Air and um, no, the Air Force asked the company that spent millions of dollars on these <laughs> to fix it. And so they started designing around the edges. And I kind of like that because if you have the edges designed and you let the children figure out what goes, what the filler is from there in order to get into that, then there's the chance for them to actually explore and learn. But the, what ended up happening was the company came in and they finally figured things out. So they were able to flex the seats so that the seat comfort was better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody who wanted to fly the plane was able to adjust inside the cockpit. Everybody Ergo, on the height of we now five have, foot nine. <laughs> The fighter, yeah, well, fighter pilots ergo, are notoriously small because the cockpits are designed notoriously small. Yeah, and my brother, who's was in the Air Force, and he's six four, almost six five. No hope there. <laughs> Good and be, be a pilot. Nope. You can, you can be fly, a navigator, you or, or you can do this. You but... Yeah. Nope. Because and the whole thing was because the the big parameter kind of going on that is because the ejector seat. If they happened to do that, it would break it would break their legs because their knees would smash into the control panel if they. Well, well, got... better broken legs than a broken body and death. True, well, but they were like, you know, eh. anywho, being like, rocketed no. out um, of an airplane at <laughs> sub mock speed. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little Not, unpleasant. Uh, anyway. you know, you're gonna you're bound to break something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Better you than me. Um, so, yeah. but you're right. So, Right. And so what they are talking about is the separation between knowledge and skills. So you've got your skill set over here. How are you going to present that knowledge? So how do you get that knowledge is up to you. And yeah, we can prod them. We can help them because we're going to go around and we're going to say, okay, Tommy, what are you working on today? And Tommy's going to tell us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we need to also work on those executive function skills like time management and organization. So we're going to get all of that down. So maybe we also need to create a timeline for everybody so that they know. And an interesting thing that I was reading was deconstruct the timeline. So you go backwards so people can, so they can conceive how that would work. Right. Like you, you back, like, what do you want to get to? And then you go, right. And then you mm -hmm. backfill. What Right. What, can, right. what do I need to do to teach this material to get to the, yeah. Right, right. Well, what do they need to do? Not you. Well, I mean, like, you keep, what bringing, do... you keep bringing it back to yourself, but we want to bring it to the students. Well, in my head, it made sense. If I need to, like you said, civil war, if, what do I want them to know? And so then what do I need to prepare? Right, the goal. And, right, what's the objective? And then how right. am I going then, to, right, and you those have three handy. pillars that you talked about. What are those? Right. Right, three right. areas so, in order to okay. get there. That's what I meant by backfilling. Like I can't just okay. be like, we're going to do civil war, go, because then you need a little bit of guidance. Well, you need to have multiple means of content and information for them to access yep. in different ways. Correct. Um, you need to be able to give them models, feedback, and support, right? Mm -hmm. And you also need to give them choices, autonomy, and then they also need to be able to learn from their mistakes. So they can fail forward. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. And that's so hard. Kids are so scared to make mistakes because they equate it with failure, right? 
So then they're right. But like, if they're but you know what? If they get into their own, if they start figuring it out and they're doing their own project and and they're and you're encouraging them, and you are a warm demander. Yeah. I knew I'd have to use that term. Yeah, there it is. Um, Then they start becoming expert learners on what they're doing because they are guiding themselves. So they are purposeful. They are motivated. They are resourceful. They're knowledgeable. They become become strategic. They become Mm -hmm. goal-directed, and they can go into a flow. That's exactly why I said focus because learning, learning follows focus, and flow definitely follows focus. And those are the, the best right. learning states of all is flow. So, yeah, yeah, it's really an intense learning state. And you're just so in, enveloped in the situation and in, in the material that um, it's almost a joy. It is a joy, yeah. actually. That's what makes it flow. Yeah. Yeah. So when you engage the students at the beginning, when you're going to be doing the, um, when you're going to be starting off whatever the lesson is, whatever the thing is, you need to get their attention, and then yeah. you have also need to have some options for sustaining their interest. It's hard to keep so, kids focused. I think that's one of the best traits that teachers have is keeping kids focused, um, initially focusing right. on keeping so, them focused, and, that, and using all the, the different ways to approach kids is very important. Yeah, like UDL. Oh, yeah. So how do you build your anticipatory set? You're right. Yeah. If we want to get down into the technique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I mean, going back to Madeline Hunter. And then what are your options for recruiting interest and keep and having kids maintain self-control? As you said, you have the students who are very kinesthetic, who are going to want to keep bouncing around. And how do you keep them engaged? What is it that they might need to do? So maybe you put them on one side of the room and their stuff is on the other side of the room. So when they need to take a break, they take their stuff and they put it away and then they grab the next stuff and then they have to walk back. So that gives them a little bit of a break. Yeah. Organization. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Organization is a big part. Yep. <laughs> right. Right. So if you're going to set up your classroom, how is your, or your learning environment, how is your learning environment set up so that students feel safe and they can explore, they know where everything is. You need to be consistent. Everything needs to be there so that they know what they can rely on as well. Correct? Yeah. Yes. Typical good learning environment. Yeah. So I'm going to go with, uh, let me see what I have here. I'm going to put this in the show notes as well. This is the Universal Design for Learning Guidelines. I'm going to have the link to this. And oh, so good. it's it's kind of, and you can see it because I'm showing it to you. It's in black and white, <laughs> but on the computer, it's in color. Yeah. But I used, I used what we have here at work. Um, provide multiple means of engagement. So optimize individual choice and autonomy, optimize relevance, value, and authenticity, minimize threats and distractions. Provide options for sustaining effort and persistence. Provide options for self-regulation. You promote the expectations, et cetera. Provide multiple means of representation. So for perception, what are the options for perception? How do they customize the display of information? Offer alternatives for auditory information. Offer alternatives for visual information. And language and symbols clarify vocabulary symbols, clarify syntax and structure, support decoding of text, mathematical notation and symbols, promote understanding across languages, and illustrate through multiple media. So a lot of what you were saying that you would do works. Um, You probably also want to have some manipulatives. It was really interesting because they were talking about um, a Rubik's Cube. And how would you design a Rubik's Cube for somebody who is colorblind and also, how would you design it for somebody who was blind? And somebody said, well, maybe you just do it Braille. Well, when they came up with what they designed, it, every 
the the cube was all in braille, but it was all white because they didn't they figured, well, it's a blind person. We don't need to really put colors on there. <laughs> but what if it's a colorblind person? Right. Or or maybe something else. How can that Rubik's Cube then change? So what they ended up doing was putting symbols on there and it still maintained colors. So you might have a diamond for what or a triangle for oh, one yeah. color, a diamond for another, a circle for another, and a square for another, etc. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. So that yeah. way, so that way, a blind person who needs to be tactile can figure that out, and mm-hmm. so can somebody who's colorblind, and so can just a regular sighted person. Yeah, that's great. So different that's ways idea, yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. So it's non-limiting, and you're able to get something with that. Um, when we get into, oh, what are your options for comprehension? So how do you supply the background knowledge? How do you, what are the different means that you might have? So, and yeah, it's going to be really, really difficult because sometimes we're stuck with really uh, outdated materials, et cetera. But, you know, historical facts are historical facts. They're in the ba- they're in the past. And just because a book isn't updated, well, book's not updated, but you still have the same facts as you would have if you got the new book. It just would have better colors, maybe. Um, and so you could use that, but you might want to have some things that provide more. So you're going to be bringing all that up. So you can actually start building a whole, a whole network of whatever it is that you're going to be teaching and have like this one corner that's going to be the math section. Maybe if you're a one room schoolhouse or if your alternative program has multiple subjects being taught in the one room, right. you can have these different corners where kids can be. And if you remember, we talked about Peter Gray, where he talked about students being in charge of their own learning. So this also goes back to all of that. So if you remember, I don't remember how many episodes ago that was. That was, I want to say it was back in, whoa, probably October, one of the first few that we did. Um and so that might be something that people want to look at. Physical action. So what are the methods for response and navigation? Can students, instead of having to do a presentation in front of the class, can they do that in private? That's something that a lot of teachers do. Yeah. Oh, my need, gosh. If, mm-hmm. if a kid needs to take a test, can you give that test orally? Yep. Can you... I mean, there's just so many different ways that they can do it. Yeah. What is the barrier? Is the and the, another one on that one that we see all the time is timed. Do I? Is it important to know how fast a kid can produce the information, or is it just important to know that they? And I say produce, but like demonstrate knowledge, right? I just want right. them to know if they get it and understand it and comprehend it and can explain it. I'm re- for most of it. I'm not really looking to see how fast they can do it, right? So that would be an example Mm -hmm. of, you know. Yeah, and that way you can also work with a kid who might have the barrier of not being able to come up with the information as quickly as maybe Philip is is like rapid fire. He jumps into something, he comes up with the stuff, and then, um, but can he demonstrate as well that he actually has a competent knowledge of what's going on and how are you going to demonstrate that? So that's going to be Philip's job. And then let's say that maybe you're not as quick as Philip and you you just have a deeper love for the material. <laughs> Philip just wants to get it over with. Right. <laughs> and then maybe we have little Blakely over here who who really hates the material and doesn't want to do it and just sits there and just won't get through it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, people have to move on. And so how are we going to grade that? How are we going to do that? Well, that's when we're going to have to start talking about equity equity and grading, equitable grading. Right. And how you're going to be able to do that. So, and that's, that's going to be a topic that's coming up too. I think those Um, really go grading with equity and UDLs. Those are, I mean, they're not necessarily sure. parallel conversation, but they are super entwined, right? Mm-hmm. I believe yeah, so. They seem to be, definitely seem yeah. to be. I, the more I, I discuss these matters, especially like UDL, I start to realize why I was grading the way I was grading. I mean, I, 
I, I knew I had a reason for it and a philosophy over it, but I didn't quite, I wasn't able to sort of transcribe it as easily yeah. as it's been transcribed studying this. But, yeah. is, mm -hmm. I, could, I simply couldn't grade one you. kid on the standards of another. I, I just never could bear that. <laughs> Now, the one thing that you're going to have to do, though, is you're going to have to create a rubric. Yeah. And the kids have to be able to understand the rubric and how mm -hmm. they're being graded. And there's, there is something in there. I don't know where I put that. Is it in here? Maybe it is in here. I have. About using a, UDL to grade? Um, is that what you mean? The R words. It, it, I had a rubric in here and I can't find it now. Um, I just have so many. Oh, here we go. Oh, there's so many books that I have. <laughs> so it's, I'm trying to see, is this a rubric? Oh, no, this is not a rubric. Here is a table that they have um, from discrete tasks to multiple modes of learning. So if here's where we standardly go, okay, and I'm going to read off the list. And that's read, that should move into take in information. How do they take in the information? So do they read it? Do they listen? Okay. Um, but that's that. So let's explore how each of our students takes in the information. And then writing and speaking, are those the only means with which a student can express their information and what they know? Which should be enough. So... Can they manipulate calculations? Can they remember concepts? Can they remember procedures? Can they solve problems? So then we're looking at how do they demonstrate understanding of processes, demonstrate understanding of concepts and ideas, show what you know through personally accessible formats, and create a representation of what you know. And I think the exciting thing about that is that as students then maybe transition from where we are, they have a good idea of exactly how they learn, how to express themselves, how to move forward. And that can also generate real confidence when they're in that chair for an interview for a job that they really it's, want. Because yeah. now they can tell you, here's how I do things and I'm very effective with it. And so they know exactly what their strengths are. I was just thinking that because, and not only even a step before that is they will recognize what their learning styles are and what they prefer in order to figure out what jobs they do want to apply for, mm -hmm. right? And then therefore right. they can speak mm -hmm. to their strengths. And then when they go to college, if they go to college or they go to a training school or something, they know what would, and this goes with the same thing that you just said, um, what would serve them best. Right. Done. And how are they going to be able to do that? Now, that doesn't mean that they get away from learning how to write an essay. No, not at all. Yeah, <coughs> excuse me. They may have to find different means. They may have to go mind map. They may have to try graphic organizers. They may have to do all kinds of different methods in order for them to figure out what format they're going to use in order to get to their writing. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's important to state and recognize that just because a student would always choose to do an oral presentation does not exclude them from having to know how to write and write well, right? Mm -hmm. Like it shouldn't right. be one at the expense of another skill. But I think there's yeah. ways, I think yeah. the overall reaching message should definitely be like, how can we embrace a variety of methods, not, say, you know, because sometimes that gets skewed, right? And they're just like, well, if they only do this, they never well, learn, you know, yeah. the basics. And I that's not, you know, that's not what we're advocating. <laughs> yeah, sure it's certainly just like, well, find their you weaknesses need to and actually strengthen them is what we do. It's only yeah. always art projects. Like, yeah, I know you always mm -hmm. want to do an art project, but we might want to expand a little, you know, how can we? Well, you could also do project-based learning. Yeah. Absolutely. How can we incorporate yeah, the two skills? How can we, right? Well, you can also like, how can we, if you're creating a, you know, 
PowerPoint or a poster, or you create something like clay, but you have to give a description of your, you know, your projectors. I mean, there's, there are so many ways that you can incorporate. And I, I just really wanted to kind of state for the record that UDL does not mean you do one method and not attempt to encourage the others, right? right? It's, you're, it's not limiting yourself to just one. No, because they, the students need to be challenged, Mm-hmm. but they need to feel confident in that challenge so that they can take it on and they know that they're going to succeed. Yeah. Because there has to be a perceptible finish line that they can reach. They just have to figure out how to get to that finish line. And it's not something that's so far out there that there's no way that they can get it. But right. it's within reach. So. Right. Yep. So. It's, it's a bit of a far way from the way that we used to teach. And we used to think that we were being all kinds of fair when we had students tutoring other students because they got it and the other students did it. Because it's, I mean, it's still playing a twist with my brain. Right, Philip? <laughs> That's one way to do things. You, you teach best what you most need to learn. Yeah, exactly. So... Okay, so we're going to wrap this up. And then what I would like to do next week is come back with a little bit more knowledge and take a look at what some of the strategies we might do with Universal Design for Learning that people might be able to use in the classroom. uh, That and some of the videos that were very insightful, encouraging and very good about teaching as well as the uh, UDL learning guidelines from CAST. So, okay. Sounds good. Okay. So once again, Philip, thank you so much. Thank you. And Christy. Aloha. It's been a delight. (laughs) (laughs) I stole Phillips. (laughs) (laughs) And to all of you, we will see you again next week. Have a great time. (laughs) Bye-bye. It's just...